All right, just at the top, I need to mention, um, we need to apologize for something that we said last week, uh, or Do I we? guess last episode. Oh, We've gotten a lot of pushback um, for something that we said, so we need to just go ahead and apologize um, before we start this episode. Oh, uh, there's apparently a lot of people out there who really enjoyed Forbidden World. Oh, oh yeah. God. No. Yeah. I had no. a lot of comments about that. Look, no. we, we have. We've gotten quite a few comments. I, I just want to say at the top, if you enjoyed the movie, that's fine. I still think it's a ripoff of Alien. Uh, I've been told it's not an alien. It's a mutant. No, it's a, no. It's mutated DNA. It's a completely different concept, but come on. It's the same Last thing. Last I checked, we live in an, we live in America. We live in free, Joe Biden's America. You're free to have an opinion, and you're free to be an idiot. Uh, we have an opinion, and everyone who likes Forbidden Worlds being an idiot. That's what the... Wow. That's, that's Damn, what I'm doubling saying. Doubling down. I'm not doubling apologizing. Down. You'll I, get a... Uh, a 33% apology from this podcast unless Damn. Colin decides to also fold uh, I haven't seen Alien so my opinion doesn't really but uh, oh, Aliens, it's pretty good I'd recommend it. I'm gonna take that to a 50% we're 50% apologize <laughs> okay okay <laughs> So today we are going to be talking about pioneer industrialists. Are you, are you not going to welcome anybody to the podcast? I'm actually doing the topics. You're supposed to do the intro. Oh shit! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to. <laughs> the... All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to I Really Wish You Hadn't. I'm Michael Bentley, and I'm here with Cayman McMahon. hey And as always, Colin Moore. What up? Who is our producer That's that me. I didn't yep. mention. Super producer. Yeah, Say something, so, Cayman. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about pioneer, industrialist, aviator, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio man, Howard Hughes. What defines uh, a Leonardo DiCaprio man? Leonardo DiCaprio played him in the Martin Scorsese movie, The Aviator. Oh, okay. There you go. Pretty good movie if you've never seen it. I haven't. It's it's kind of weird. They uh, put all of the events of his life... Well, they pick and choose events of his life, and they put them in a movie out of order. So it it's a good movie. I definitely recommend it. Scorsese's great. Do they play it as if like it's happening sequentially, or do they like just... Is it like a t- Tarantino kind of deal? It's like... No, okay. So they don't necessarily say that it's acting sequentially but they don't they don't don't call attention to the fact they don't yeah that it's not sequential they don't like make a point of it yeah so um (laughs) yeah we'll just dive into it so this uh story begins as all great stories do with a brief biography of a different guy with the same name as howard hughes in 1869 in lancaster missouri Howard Roberts Hughes Sr. was born to a father who was a judge and a mother who was intent on the proper education of her children. It's weird that they named their kid Senior. Senior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they had some good foresight. In their adulthood, Hughes' siblings had become a major success in one way or another. Uh, one was a concert singer, one was an opera singer, and one was a very famous screenwriter. See, Howard Sr.'s father had a plan for him to follow in his footsteps and take up a career in law. 
Howard obliged and was accepted into Harvard upon graduating from high school. While he was considered to be near genius by his teachers, by his family, pretty much everyone that met him, uh, he was a curious young man that was much more interested in taking apart his family's radio and putting it back together than he was in books. Well, and so one of the things I meant to bring up before you started getting into it was, you know, if you haven't listened to the Hedy Lamar episode that we did a couple episodes back for the I'm really glad you did. He played a major part in that. And it's weird that, you know, it's already starting to sound like because Hedy Lamar would take her toys apart and put them back together. Right. Like they're already well, kind of starting to go down. This that is Howard path. Hughes senior. OK, sorry. I thought so. Okay. We got to we got to look out there. And yeah, I actually bring that up later. So uh, okay, that's well, that's actually I think when we did H- Hedy Lamar, it was like where I was like, oh, shit, we need to do Howard Hughes. Yeah. So Michael gets partial credit for this topic. Hey, there you go. Howard Sr. quickly discovered that he did not have the patience to go through with an undergraduate degree. So after his first year, he dropped out and was accepted into law school at Iowa State University. Without a degree. Without a degree. Yeah, well, he dropped out of Harvard, so I figured that helped. Is Harvard just there for people to drop out of? Like... Pretty much. <laughs> does anybody finish Harvard? No, Howard... Or Harvard makes all of its money by having wealthy people donate money to it to let their children in, so that their children can, can drop, drop out. out. Yeah. Right, okay. Right. So Howard then decided that he did not have the patience for law school... So he dropped out of Iowa State and took the bar exam. Of course, he passed. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, so he just was like, no, I'm so, skipping all on. this is school it, stuff. Is that like, can I still do that? Like, can I just I think, go take yeah. the bar exam? You can just go take the bar exam. I'm, I don't think that you would be, even if you passed it, I'm not sure if you'd actually be hired anywhere. I think that you would be licensed to practice law, but I'm not sure if like a firm would actually hire you. So, eh, regardless, I I could be wrong about that. If you know more about the bar exam, hit me up. I think that's how it works. Howard then got a job at his father's law firm. And after a short time, he grew bored. Uh, So he stopped being a lawyer and went to start mining and be a prospector, seeking, uh, you know, riches and adventure. Yeah. (laughs) As one does. Yeah, you know, just drop it out of your job to go pick at rocks. Uh, Howard was not the greatest miner, and as far as actually finding the goods... Well, yeah, he's not a good miner because he's a senior. (laughs) Got him. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. But, however, he did begin to quickly learn all the ins and outs of the trade, because this guy's, you know, hyper-intelligent. He's a very smart guy. He's a Harvard dropout, which is pretty much the title that makes you one of the smartest people in the United States. Right. So then, on January 10th, 1901, a well in Beaumont, Texas, erupted to become the first quote-unquote gusher of the Texas oil boom. I love a good Texas gusher. <laughs> so this well would become known as Spindletop. You may have read about it in your history books and forgotten about it. But this would start not only a new age for America, but for the world. With the discovery of Spindletop, it became immediately clear that burning petroleum as a fuel for mass consumption was economically feasible. And I actually ripped that last line straight from Wikipedia because that summed it up fantastic. And I tried to think of something else. That was good. Yeah, so uh, Spindletop, massive discovery. Uh, Spindletop's success would attract prospectors from all over the country ready to strike it rich on the oil fields of Texas. And among them was Howard Hughes Sr., 
Hughes had about the same success at being an oil man as he did a mining man, at least at first. Uh, he would make about $50,000 one month on a good find, and the next month he'd be about 50 k in debt to the bank. Uh, but in 1904, Hughes struck it rich with his biggest find so far, which was love. Oh. See, Alain Gano, like Hughes, was well-educated and from a successful family. So similar, in fact, that her father was also a prominent judge. Although Hughes Sr. wasn't an impressive catch, because, you know, he was rich one month and broke the next, they still managed to get married. I guess that her family saw some potential in Howard Sr., or at least he convinced them. A year later, the couple would give birth to their first and only child, Howard Hughes Jr. So, Hughes Sr. began to find some moderate success in the following years, but his fate and the fate of the entire oil industry would be changed in 1909, when the resourceful Hughes Sr. would be granted a patent for a two-cone rotary drill bit that would be nicknamed Rock Eater. Now, if you have seen, like, those big mining drill bits, uh, a lot of times now they, they're three-cone instead of two-cone, but essentially the whole premise is it's those two drill bits that, like, mash stuff up in between them. Mm-hmm. See, up to this point, prospectors looking for oil pretty much just had to stop mining if they hit rocks. This left huge oil reserves that were unreachable even if people knew that they were there. The rock eater drill bit was about to change that. Its spinning two-cone design allowed for miners to not only penetrate rocks, but to do so incredibly quickly. By 1915, the Hughes Tool Company would be wildly successful, not for selling drill bits but doing something that Hughes thought was a little bit better, leasing them. So Hughes is an instant success in 1915. This drill bit like immediately makes him stupid wealthy, mega rich, um, kind of like, I don't know if we were going to compare it to something in fiction, Stark Industries, uh, Wayne Industries, um, because that's, you know, who this is all based off of. His dad's Howard Stark, right? Yeah, his dad's Howard Stark, his dad's, you know, the Wayne. Batman and Iron Man are both based off Howard Hughes. So, yeah, it's that same story you've probably heard a few times in superhero comics. Uh, Because of Hughes Sr.'s newfound responsibility, the job of raising Hughes Jr. fell to his mother, Aline, who took the job very seriously. Uh, Little Howard was smothered with care. His feet, teeth, and digestive functions were checked daily for any abnormalities. The slightest change in his physical condition would have him rushed off to the doctor immediately. Doctor, my son's feet are dirty. (laughs) He was forced to take mineral oil baths nightly. Uh, The two moved regularly anytime there was an outbreak of disease in the city they were in, which was extremely common in cities in the early 1900s. Yellow fever, cholera, polio. Uh, There were a lot of diseases. So they were just constantly moving, her and her son, because, you know, Hughes Sr. was out doing business. Now, Howard, of course, grew attached at the hip to his mother and would only go anywhere that she went. Other mothers would be amazed at Howard's calm and politeness towards his mother. And it would be when Howard was 10 years old before he ever spent a night away from his mother. And that's when he first went to a summer boys camp. The camp was no easy feat for Aline. She had to be given constant reports from the camp's doctor on the status of her quote-unquote sickly son and was in constant communication with the camp leader informing him of the best health practices for his camp. 
And also, she would go as far as to say which boys should not be allowed back due to sicknesses that they'd gotten that they could spread. How did she know? Uh, that's a great question. I imagine through communication with the camp leader. Uh, the camp leader, by the way, would go on to found the Boy Scouts. So, hmm. uh, but yeah, so he did write to her pretty frequently. And like, you can read the letters that he wrote to her and he just sounds so annoyed. Like, he's just yeah. like, I'm getting reports from the doctor as fast as I can get them. Like, Howard's doing fine. He's a regular boy. He's okay. Um, Was he but, still you know, getting his nightly mineral baths? Yes. Were they checking his feet regularly? Yes. Okay. Yes. These are. This is what Aline's letter said when she was writing in. She was like, "I haven't gotten <laughs> any updates on his feet." Yeah. <laughs> so she allowed Howard to go back a second summer. Uh, really, her whole thing was this: was one, she was afraid of everything, but two, it was secluded, so he was away from like the disease of the cities, and two, you know the woodsy air would make him stronger and she was kind of we're gonna say kooky she was a little kooky but in that second summer little howard began being bullied and of course when he started being bullied he started to fall ill uh in reality howard probably was just using illness as an escape to social difficulties in his life because he had learned to play into his mother's hypochondria towards him possibly he believed you know, that he was ill himself. He probably just started to feel bad and was like, this is an illness. So, um, I mean, do you think that this is like kind of a Munchausen's by proxy situation where like the mom is like putting ailments on him to like... I think that she definitely, I think that she definitely had anxiety about him being away and she passed that anxiety on to him. Like uh-huh. she, I, I don't think that she was just trying to get him close. I think that she was genuinely like terrified. She was a germaphobe. Uh, as we'll see later, Howard has OCD. I think that that's a lot of nurture, um, but I think there's also probably a bit of nature in that, where okay. she likely had OCD as well, and kind of went unchecked. So, uh, by most accounts, he was likely a healthy young boy, uh, short of poor hearing, which ran in the family. He he couldn't hear for shit. His dad couldn't either, his grandfather couldn't. Just a genetic thing. Now, Howard was smart, just like his father, um, but his grades didn't always reflect that. Possibly his grades were bad because he was pulled out of school so frequently for quote-unquote illnesses or any time that someone would get a disease at his school and would return only to be behind other students in his studies. Well, and that's the other thing, is if he's constantly moving cities, like, I mean, I guess they would have to pull him out of school and send him to another school all the time. I think, I think, well, that too, I think once he was older, they started to settle a little bit more, because he had, he had to get educated somehow. Right. With how much money they had and everything, I'm surprised they didn't just bring in a private tutor and call it a day. Yeah, but they also, um, surprisingly his mother was also concerned about him not being a very sociable young boy so she was like he's got to be sociable but then she's causing him to be unsociable in a lot of ways yeah but don't talk to anyone they might have germs (laughs) yeah so in what time little hughes had free to himself he was mechanically inclined and interested much like his father had been uh he would take apart devices and build new ones he built his first radio transmitter at age 11 his first motorbike at age 12, being the first person in his town to have a motorbike. By age 14, he had gained an interest in flight and began learning how to fly. 
uh, this would become one of the great passions of his life. Just the way you put that. Like, yeah, he just started learning how to fly. It was yeah. pretty cool. I, he's... Howard Hughes... No, I know, but you didn't mean like... You didn't say like, oh, you know, he started taking like pilot lessons. Like, you were like, oh, he, he's starting to learn to fly. I mean, that's kind of how it seems that it went. He would just... You know, this wasn't formal back then. He'd just like go up in the sky with pilots and be like, how do you do this? And he'd learn everything about it. Because any time that Howard was presented with anything that he didn't know about, he would toil for nights until he knew all the ins and outs, all the different names, all the different... Like, he's dummy smart. Like, insanely smart. Uh, He is Tony Stark. So in high school, his grades began to improve and represented the talent that he had. In 1921, uh, he started attending the prestigious Thatcher School at his father's will. And his father's idea was, I dropped out of Harvard. I should make sure that my son gets into Harvard and actually gets a degree so he's successful. My son will drop out of Harvard also. (laughs) So Howard continued to excel at his schoolwork, uh, much as he had for all of his life, but he struggled to make any friends. Uh, Before the end of the school year in 1922... Howard's mother, Eileen, who had been so close to Howard, died unexpectedly during a minor routine surgery. Oh, no. I'm sure that's going to be great for his mental health. Yeah, this is when he's about 14, I believe. No, this is when he's 16. This is when he's 16. So, Howard Sr. was guilt-stricken. He truly loved Eileen, and he was kind of a family man for how much he was away. Uh, So, he pulled Howard Jr. out of school to live closer to him. This wasn't for Howard Jr.'s sake. This was for, like, kind of his sake. Like, the head of the Thatcher School was like, he needs to stay. He's doing so well. He's a great student. He's getting comfortable. And Howard Sr. was like, I'm heartbroken. I need my son. Mm -hmm. So Howard goes to California. uh, And he, you know, not even really finishing high school, uh, started attending engineering classes at the California Institute of Technology. You might think, oh, how did he do that? Um, turns out Howard Sr. made a large financial contribution to the college. Right. Um, then Howard started attending Rice University, which was a little bit more prestigious. You might think, how did he get in? Well, turns out Howard Sr. had made a large financial contribution to Rice University. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Howard was doing pretty well at school. Uh, you know, he hadn't been here long. But he was doing well at school. And that was until Howard Sr. died of a massive heart attack less than two years after his mother. Wow. So. So he is Batman. Yeah. Howard's now 18 and has no family. So after the death of his father, Howard Hughes Jr. uh, I'm just going to start calling him Howard from now on. When I refer to Howard, you're going to know who I'm talking about. It's Jr. Uh, It's the ghost of Howard Hughes Sr. (laughs) Right. So he withdrew from Rice University. See, Howard's parents had planned his entire life for him. And now that they were gone, he was left with 75% ownership in Hughes Tool Company. The tool company was still massively successful, um, but Howard was a little confused about what to do with his life now that he had to start planning it out for himself. And he's 18. Yes. So, being only 18 at the time, he was actually legally a minor in Texas until age 21, so he was going to have to wait till 21 before he could take control of anything. Or why not just move somewhere where it's not 18, or where it's uh, not Because, 21. well, the company's in Texas, the company's so I'm in not Texas, sure yeah. how that would really work. So, 
after his father's funeral, so very shortly after his father died, his uncle Rupert, and this was his father's brother who was a successful playwright, uh, offered to serve as Howard's legal guardian until he was of age at 21. All of Howard's extended family pretty much agreed. Everyone on his dad's side was like, yeah, he needs a legal guardian. Rupert's like financially successful on his own. So like, that's fine. He'll like help out Howard. 18 year old Howard Hughes saw this as a money grab from his family and was offended that they did not think that he being the, you know, non-graduate grieving antisocial 18 year old uh, should immediately take control of his father's massive company. So the young Hughes put together a plan of action to get himself declared an adult. Uh, Essentially, he started smoozing up to a judge. um, And the day that he turned 19, he was declared emancipated, an emancipated minor, which gave him control of the company. He then ordered the officers of the Hughes Tool Company to open negotiation with his father's family to buy the remaining 25% share of the company that he did not already own. Um, And essentially, they made them offers. It almost like, like, not almost bankrupt, but it was a huge financial burden to the company to buy out that 25% of shares for Howard. And they did. Uh, They managed it. So within four months after his father's death, Hughes, now just 19 years old, had complete ownership of his father's company and had done so by ruthlessly cutting ties to his family, at least on his father's side. That's good. Just go ahead and cut all, all the rest of the social ties that you have. Did he have any friends? Not entirely, no. Uh, he had one childhood friend um, that he got along with all right. He wasn't, like, completely incapable of talking to people. He just wasn't No, but I mean, like, it. He ha- it sounds like he has no, like, concrete relationships. Like, yeah, he can talk to people, but, like, it seems like he's completely isolated. Well, himself. that's the thing. After he cuts off his father's family... He pretty much just has his mother's sister, so his aunt. Um, yeah. And she she kind of, like, looks out for him, which I'll actually get into now. So now that Hughes controlled the Hughes Tool Company, he decided to step back from interfering in the company's operations, uh, preferring instead to preserve it as a monument to his father's legacy. So he just told all of his officers, like, you guys take care of it. Keep the money going in. Keep the company growing. Do what you do well, best. Then what was the purpose of, like, buying out the 100% thing if he was just going to let it run autonomously. He didn't want that last 25% meddling. Yeah, he didn't want any meddling. He didn't want to have to deal with other people. He wanted to be the only guy in charge, which is something that he will keep uh, for the rest of his life. Like, he'll have other people manage all of his affairs because, like, he's Mm -hmm. doing a lot of stuff. Um, But he is consistently in the position of power to be able to make any decision that he wants, which is important to him. Now, Howard was intrigued by Hollywood, so he decided that he would like to move there and live permanently on his own. Previously, at this point, he'd been living at his family home in Texas, especially while getting all of his father's affairs and estate in in order. Uh, His aunt on his mother's side was against the idea of him living alone in L.A. at such a young age, especially with his antisocial behavior, uh, which she kind of saw that as like a vulnerability for other people that might just try and like trick him out of his wealth. So, in order to give Howard a more stable life, she helped secure him a marriage to a young Texas socialite that he was interested in named Ella Rice. Uh, Once married, they moved to California together. Now, while golfing, shortly after he moved to L.A. at the Wilshire Country Club, an actor by the name of Ralph Graves pitched Hughes a film idea about an alcoholic who adopts a baby. And Howard thought it was a good idea. 
Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I'm I'm sold. Yeah, it, it does. Um, so Hughes invested $40,000 into the movie with Graves to write, star in, and direct the movie. Uh, it would be called Swell Logan. By the time it made it to the screen, the budget of the film was doubled to $80,000, which is about $1.2 in today's money. Which is not bad for like a startup film, but the film was absolutely horrible. Yeah, I bet. So horrible, in fact, that Hughes had all copies of the movie destroyed after it premiered. Uh, like his father, Hughes was not dissuaded by his failure. He was actually just kind of motivated by it. He now had a better understanding of the industry and also a reputation as some young, rich, dumb kid that tried to make a movie and failed. Uh, so he was going to prove everyone wrong. Because keep in mind, he's like still like 1920-ish at this time. Now, Hugh's next movie, Everybody's Acting, was actually relatively successful. Well, that was the problem. In the first movie, there were some people that weren't acting. <laughs> yeah, I thought about like going back and trying to watch some of these movies, but they're silent yeah, films. And I'm, yeah, they're old. I'm not, yeah, there's no yeah, way. No. So yeah, his third movie, and third time is the charm, uh, was Two Arabian Nights. It won an award at the first Academy Awards. Uh, the reward oh, wow. was for Best Director, but still that was under Hughes' vision, and Hughes had completed all this at like, I think he was 21 at the time. So he went from a complete failure to a producer of award-winning movies in a little over a year. That's nuts. His next three movies would either be nominated for or win Academy Awards. Most notable of these movies would be Hell's Angels. See, with Hell's Angels, Hughes wanted to bring his love of aviation to the big screen in a way that had never been done before. And this was really like a personal pet project. Like, this was a passion project for Hughes. Uh, in order to create the world's most immersive and accurate World War I dogfight movie... Hughes would spend $2.8 million on the movie in 1930 money, which was an insane amount at the time. Yeah. His desire for accuracy was so great that he put together the world's largest private air force for the aerial sequences. So would this be the most expensive movie ever made at the time? No, actually, it is a little short. I believe that Ben-Hur had come out a few years earlier. Wait, and really? it was... I thought Ben-Hur was like... No, Ben-Hur was... Mm -mm. Uh, it's had a few remakes, but the original Ben-Hur, the epic, oh, okay. yeah, was yeah, like... Yeah. It had like a $4 million budget or something like that. That's it was nuts. insane. Or maybe it was like $3 million. Uh, One thing, and I'll get into this in a little bit. Uh, after he does complete the movie, there were reports that the movie cost over $4 million, Um, And that's actually because Hughes like put those rumors out there to make it sound like it was the most expensive movie of nice. all time. Actually, it wasn't. But it was still dummy expensive. The man knows marketing. So, Hell's Angels was a production hell from the get-go. Uh, due to Hughes' interest in the movies, uh, the first director that he hired could not deal with Hughes' obsession over tiny details and his overbearingness. He quit shortly after the second director came in, quit for the same reason. He told Hughes that the movie would never find a director Unless Hughes decided to direct it himself. So Hughes said, I... And did. Howard's obsession over the movie was so great that he would stay awake regularly for 20 hours at a time. And after going months and months on end of not hearing from her husband, 
Ella Rice filed for divorce because he essentially just moved to LA, put his wife up in a hotel room, and was like, I'm going to go do other stuff. Hughes' desire for truly dangerous aerial stunts led to three different deaths on set, and even Hughes crashed his plane attempting a move that the other pilots refused to do. Uh, in this crash, Hughes fractured his face and skull requiring reconstructive surgery. Now, let's keep that in mind. Head injury. We're going to say that's head injury number one. Okay, good. I'm, I'm sure that means there's no more. Right. So Hughes' OCD and vision did pay off in parts of the movie, though, such as a $460,000 scene in which a German airship was shot down in a fireball. This scene looks so accurate that it's kind of hard to discern a difference in it and the footage of the Hindenburg disaster. Only difference being that the Hindenburg disaster wouldn't happen for another seven years. Wow. Now, the most aggressive setback of the film was halfway through when Hughes decided that he wanted his film to have sound like the new talkie movies did. Mm -hmm. So in addition to having to re-record everything, they also had to reshoot everything and some of the cast was foreign. So they had to recast the movie and it like essentially they just started making the movie again halfway through they made a remake during the production well yeah they made a remake during the production and because he wanted to have a movie with sound that's insane. now the premiere of the film was on may 27th 1930 i believe hughes is around 25 at this time uh and it was no small event the whole industry was interested to see hughes's multi-million dollar film now, he had World War I planes flying over Hollywood, making swooping gestures over Grauman's Chinese Theater, which is the big place to premiere a movie. Yeah, it's where everybody puts their hands in the, in the concrete. Yeah, yeah, that's mm -hmm. Grauman's Chinese Theater. So the film was a massive success. It grossed over $2 million, more than nearly any movie had ever done. That being said, he's still lost about you know, $0.8 million on it. $800,000. It's crazy to have the highest grossing film of all time, but you still lose money. <laughs> That's how you know you have a passion project. I don't think it was actually the highest grossing, but it was damn close. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was definitely a passion project. So luckily for Hughes, his next movie, released in 1932, was a little bit more financially successful. Financially successful in that he actually broke even on it. Uh, and you, you may go. have heard the name of this one, uh, Scarface. Now, see, Scarface is a story loosely based on the American gangster Al Capone. The movie did not hold back at all, and by the time standards, the violence and the sexual references were insane. Like, nothing that had been seen before in a movie. Was Al Capone still alive at this time? Yes. Yes, and he was not a... F or Actually, I think that he was upset when he heard that Hughes was making the movie, um, but then he saw it and he was cool with it. Huh. So, yeah. Despite having a very positive critical reception, like people love it's actually supposed to be a very, very good movie. I feel like it's worth pointing out because I feel like this, it's not like super well known, but the Scarface that you think of when you think of the movie Scarface is actually a remake, but it's yeah. put, you know, with a Cuban spin rather than an Italian spin. Right. So it's just a remake and they brought it up to modern times. That's how influential right. this film was. And actually I was looking at this list of like, it was, I don't think it was the Academy, but it was some other prestigious like movie place. And they did a ranking of like the top 10 best gangster movies of all time or mm -hmm. the top 10 most influential. Uh, Howard Hughes' Scarface is number seven. 
And then the Scarface remake is number 10. Wow. Well, I mean, of course it's more influential because it inspired right. the other one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I'm actually I'm actually interested in seeing this one because apparently it's amazing. Uh, despite yeah, the great out. reception that it received, um, the gratuity of the film and the concern that it glorified gang violence uh, caused major censorship of the movie. It could only air in certain states. So Hughes decided just to entirely pull it. Um, that being said, it made waves. It was very popular in the news. Um, it got a yeah. lot of press. So it's possible that the troubles of making Scarface um, kind of dissuaded Hughes from movies for a little bit. So he took a brief hiatus from the film industry to pursue his other interests. Really? That's the one That's the one that he's like, this is too much, man. I got to step away. It wasn't the one that he literally got in a plane crash over? No. No, plane crashes okay. to Howard Hughes are like, eh, but uh, that is something that like I had impresses. to have facial reconstruction surgery. It's fine. Like, no, that's something that impresses me is we're going to see this multiple times. I knew that I'd have to bring this up at some point. Dude must be fearless. Like typically, like even when people are like in small car crashes, they're a little jittery that first time, like getting back in the car or something like that. No, Howard Hughes will like crash a plane, spend months in the hospital. And then like as soon as they discharge him, he'll go back in the plane. To like try and like do the same, you know, whatever he was trying to do in the plane that caused the crash. Uh, yeah, the guys, the guy is fearless, except germs. Yes, and we'll he has get no fears that. except germs. <laughs> yeah, so he takes a hiatus from the film industry, like I said, to pursue his other interests, which are women and planes. And now here's where I bring up the women because I probably cut out about a fourth of my notes because I was like, this episode is going to be way too long if I keep talking about the women. Tony Stark, like I've mentioned, is based on Howard Hughes. Tony Stark, of course, the ladies' man. James Bond is probably a little bit closer in representation, but I would say that Hughes might even put Bond to shame. There were a lot of women, like a lot of women. Some of them we have mentioned, such as Hedy Lamar, and we'll probably mention more of the women at some point in the future. It seems like he dated pretty much every famous woman at some point or another. Simply, we do not have the time. Uh, Catherine Hepburn is another notable one, but it's kind of hard to find the details of their relationship and discern them from tabloid conjecture, although they were kind of off and on together for a long time. Really, you should just know that concerning women, there were a lot, and Howard Hughes seemed to be a pretty big fan. Now we're going to move on to Planes. Didn't, I don't know if you have this before we move on, like, I'm pretty sure I, I, I did a quick search because I, I, I wanted to verify, but I can't find it again. Pretty sure Hedy Lamar said that Howard Hughes was the most boring sex she ever had. I think I remember you saying that. Uh, it wouldn't really surprise me. It's just <laughs> weird, because, like, you always... And and brings to mind JFK. Like, they say, like, you know, oh, yeah, they had sex with hundreds and hundreds of women. And then, like, whenever somebody talks about it, they're like, oh, yeah, he's awful at it. Like, <laughs> it's like you, you think in your mind, like... Well, maybe you get that's why with the practice, but it maybe always that's seems why like, there were so many different women and not the yeah, same. yeah, they're all they're all the one time and then it's never again. <laughs> well, you gotta think also Hughes Hughes is really starting to come into his OCD. Um, mm-hmm. So he, for being how antisocial he was, when it was time for him to take the reins, he became like not only immensely powerful, like in money. But also, like, he just had one of those presences that when he walked into a room, like, he was the guy in the room. Yeah. Um, And I think that that was very attractive. His, like, insane confidence was. Yeah. But then, of course, 
you know, he would get back to his house and he would be obsessive compulsive and he would only like go into certain rooms and right. as we'll come to find out would only eat certain meals and was weird about a lot of things. So yeah, I don't know. I think that he was good at hooking them, but either not interested enough or throwing them back, not stable enough to keep them. Yeah. Yeah. So the Hughes Haircraft Company was founded in 1932. Uh, specifically, it was founded to maintain the financial side of Hughes aviation interests and hobbies. Um, during the filming of Hell's Angels, Hughes hired engineer Glenn Odekirk to maintain his massive fleet of planes. Um, he was an engineer. Uh, and the two became interested in development of the world's fastest land plane. Now, I'm not sure when they actually started developing it, if they were like, oh yeah, this is going to be the world's fastest plane. It more seems like they had a plane and like Hughes was like, hey, Odekirk, do you think like this could go faster? And Odekirk was like, yeah, we could do this. And they just kept meddling with it until like they were like, holy shit, this might be the world's fastest plane. Uh, so after filming on Hell's Angels wrapped, Hughes kept Odekirk employed to work on the H1 racer. Using wind tunnels to test aerodynamic capabilities, which I should point out, I don't think it's something that like many private aircraft were doing at the time. Uh, Hughes and Odekirk implemented the latest and greatest tricks to make their plane faster and faster with the least resistance. This included retractable landing gear, shorter wing sizes, and machine flush rivets that were all flushed by hand. So like every little like rivets are kind of like nails. Every single one of those had to be sanded down so it'd be flush. Mm. And this minimized drag as much as possible for this plane. The duo also managed to squeeze over 1,000 horsepower out of a 700 horsepower Pratt & Whitney 1535 engine. Uh, this engine was made popular in the upcoming World War II for being in mass use with fighter planes and dive bombers. So very fast engine. Mm-hmm. So on September 13th, 1935, Howard Hughes broke the land plane speed record on the inaugural flight of the H-1 hitting... Okay, what is a land plane? Okay, so there's seaplanes and land planes. Okay. The big difference, uh, it's easier for seaplanes to hold the record um, because they can be more aerodynamic with um, how they like land. And then also they can be bigger. Uh, because they don't have to worry about runways. They don't have to worry about being able to land on runways. It's a little bit easier to land on the water because all you got to do is float and it's lighter. Your gear to land is lighter. Um, so the big significance is, especially with having the retractable gear, which wasn't really a thing on planes then, it like made the aerodynamics so much better that it was just insanely flat, insanely fast for a land plane. So... Yeah, during this test flight, he hit 352 miles per hour, which is incredibly fast. Uh, I don't think I really have to say that, but obviously planes now are much, much, much faster. At the time, this was the fastest land plane. During his test flight, they had actually put enough fuel, and this was the first test flight, by the way, that he broke this record. They'd put enough fuel in the plane for two passes. So it's him going out from the runway, picking up speed, and coming back over the runway to see how fast it was. Hmm. Uh, Howard did four passes, ran out of fuel, and crashed the plane into a beet field. Oh my uh, god. <laughs> so they spent all this time building the fastest plane, and well, on its first flight, <laughs> Howard Hughes crashes it. Yes. Uh, because He's a he bad wanted- pilot. 
Well, no, he's not a bad pilot. He just was pushing it to its limits. He's like, I have to see if it can go faster. And they're but like, just you're literally out of fuel. I, I think that makes like, you a bad mm. pilot. Just <laughs> land and put more fuel in it and go again. Like what? <laughs> impatience. Impatience. So luckily he actually didn't do that much damage to the plane crash landing it. Uh, but he did massacre 5,000 innocent beats. And I feel like that's going to hang on his really, conscience I, for a while. The look on Michael's face. <laughs> he's, he's like, what? Whoa. Oh, no, we'll I... get to those later. <laughs> In 1937, just two years later, Howard broke another record when he used the same H1 plane to break the distance flight crashes. time. No, he didn't, <laughs> didn't crash this one. But he broke the distance flight time from New York to L.A., he achieved it in just seven hours, 28 minutes. That's also not the fastest, but you have to remember, this is a prop plane. This is not a jet plane. So that's incredibly fast. Hughes I already, uh, did the Kessel run in 12 parsecs. <laughs> did you just have to Google? That? I had to make sure I got the quote parsecs. right. <laughs> <laughs> so Hughes offered to sell the design of the plane, obviously to the U.S. military, of but according course. to Hughes, he was turned down because the army had a lack of faith and cantilever monoplane design. Of course. Uh, yeah, you know, cantilever monoplanes. Right. Uh, Don't trust this them. Is, essentially, most planes at this point in time were biplanes. A monoplane right. just has one wing. And the cantilever design is that it's beneath the plane and it's held on with, like, brackets. Okay, so, so it's, it's like one stable. big wing that kind of spans across. Rather than right. having like two separate, rather okay. than having stacked. Wings. Well, the the alternate Wait. is like a biplane which has a, like two wings. Like when you think of the okay, Wright brothers right. plane, the other, right. yeah. yeah, 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 that's yeah. a biplane. Yeah. Okay, yeah. remember, so remember, wing... we're on an audio medium, so it's important. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the wing wasn't necessarily longer, but there was only one of them, which okay. is which was so, very yeah. new at the time. He didn't invent the monoplane, but this is very new. So, yeah, the army turns them down because they're not confident in the fact that those were reliable. Uh, if we flash forward in literally a couple of years, uh, these types of planes dominated the skies in World War II. Most likely, this design of the H-1 racer influenced the design of the Japanese Zero, the German FW-190, and the American FAF Bearcat. So this is another example where the, the, the army goes, no, we're not interested in your design, and then use it anyway? Uh, yes. Yep. yep. Okay. Especially the Japanese Zero. Looking at the Japanese Zero, the designer of it like claims like, oh, no, I didn't take any inspiration from the H1 Racer. It's the H1 Racer. They saw it, and they were like, mm, good, that's what we're how doing. How did they find, like, I mean, how did they get the schematics or whatever? Like, They probably just took pictures and reverse engineered. And also, like, there were a lot of things about the plane that you could see, like, did you hear about Howard Hughes' new plane that broke a land record? I read in the newspaper okay. that it has retractable landing gear, and it's completely smooth, and they took off the rivets, and the Japanese were like, that's how you make a flat, fast and plane. And that's when we so. invented Area 51. R wait. So the, I mean, none of that stuff could get out. Oh, well, yeah, yeah this it, is just the military, the military industrial complex has a long right. history of like leaking. Um, so I don't, yeah. it, you know, it's, it was highly publicized. Um, this wasn't Lockheed Martin making it. And when he was making it, he wasn't making it to be a military plane. Uh, it just inspired a lot of, he was literally plans. doing it out beside a beet field. He was doing it to see if he could go fast. Yeah. Howard Hughes says, I got a lot of money. I want to go fast. And he had the money to make it happen. There you go. 
So Hughes is definitely on his like flying kick right now. So he's like, I just broke two records. I'm going to go for a third. So wanting to prove that air travel was safe, and keep in mind, he's crashed two planes at this point. Right. He's not doing a good job so far. No. <laughs> Hughes decided that his next goal would be to beat the world record for flight around the world. Like the fastest flight around the world? Yes. Okay. Yes. So using a modified Lockheed 14 Super Extra, Hughes completed the flight in three days, 19 hours, and 17 minutes. This was less than half the previous record. So he absolutely blew it out of the water. Overnight, Hughes became a national hero to the likes of Charles Lindbergh. Every city he visited on his, you know, post-flight tour hosted parades and celebration. He was given award after award, including the Congressional Medal of Honor, which is pretty much on par in prestige with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, but I'm going to say that it's even better because it's a lot more exclusive than the Presidential Medal of Freedom is. Like, way fewer people have, ex- have received the um, Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, Hughes was a little busy, though, so he neglected to actually stop by to pick up the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, so Harry Truman mailed it to him later. I imagine that Harry Truman was just, you know, going through the desk of the White House and was like, whose medal is this? Fun fact. Uh, what do you think the, the circumnavigating uh, world record is now? What did you say it was then? What, gonna, had, what did I, you set it at? Let's see. It was three days, 19 hours, 17 minutes. Now I'm going to go with 20 hours. I say 16. 46 hours at 40 huh. minutes. Set really? in 2019. I didn't think it would take that long. In what plane? In the Qatar Executive Gulfstream G650ER. A G6. All right, I'm going to put on... Is the, wait, is that, a, is that the record set by a private plane? Because I feel like the SR-71 should just blast everything out I of the park, like the right? I feel like the SR-71... That's what I was thinking. But maybe... Like, maybe I thought it'd be like a jet. Like well, maybe the military boom, has never... Around. Has never done, Tried. like... Because yeah. I've never like published... Or it might not be published yet. But the SR-71 yeah. would definitely win that. Uh, we think. That might be something neat Well, because that's later. the thing. If you really wanted to beat the record, you could get, like, in-flight refuelings and everything, and I doubt that this plane was doing oh, that's that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. The SR-71 could um, be flown or, uh, refueled, I'm pretty sure. In that case, we're going to have to figure out how to make circumnavigation airspeed records a topic for this podcast because i want to talk about that more but we do we do need to move on well if we're gonna do if we're gonna do it in any episode it's gonna be this one (laughs) right uh but regardless moving on that's not the topic and we still have a lot to get through so with pretty much all the major records broken uh in air travel at this time hughes decided that it was time to get involved in aviation in other ways so in 1939, he began purchasing shares to take control of Transworld Airlines, which is TWA. This is quote-unquote one of the big four U.S. domestic airlines at this time. They could fly mail, which was pretty big, uh, and they had transcontinental flights, which was pretty big, and not many people could do that at the time. Uh, while Hughes would never hold an official title with the company, other than majority shareholder, uh, he's often credited with the idea for the company to order the Boeing 307 Stratoliners and continue with other planes that had pressurized cabins. Uh, see, pressurized cabins are great for transcontinental flight because they allow you to fly above the weather. Uh, that's something that he said multiple times. 
And this is how they all are today. It makes for a much smoother ride. You don't have to worry that much about storms, except for when you're taking off and landing, because you can just fly right over them. Um, and yeah, he'll keep TWA for a while, and that will come up again later. Then Hughes, seeing the U.S.'s possible entrance into World War II, decided to get his aircraft company in the military game. In 1939, Hughes Aircraft Company began development of the Hughes D-2 Fighter Reconnaissance Aircraft. So this was an aircraft that could kind of do both, and uh, was kind of fitted to partially do both. Uh, in 1943, the plane was completed, and on recommendation of Howard Hughes' close friend, Colonel Elliot Roosevelt, the Army ordered 100 reconnaissance-focused versions of this aircraft, which would be known as the F-11. Uh, two things I want to say here. One, do you notice the name? Elliot Roosevelt. Colonel Elliot Roosevelt was the son of then-president President Roosevelt. So, Which one? Uh, There's two. Well, it's World War II, Michael. Teddy. No! <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. FDR. It's FDR, <laughs> yeah. The F-11 or the F will come up later, and this military contract will come up what? later. Hold on, let's go back. Just because it's well, move past it. He still could have been President Roosevelt's son. Like it still could have been Teddy Ro- Roosevelt's son. He could have been TR's son, I guess. If TR, you didn't had a say son current. You didn't say current president. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna stop being defensive. <laughs> uh, so the um, F11. Keep that one in mind. It will come up later. Uh, but the other plane that he starts developing is the HK-1 Hercules. Now, at the beginning of World War II, the U.S. was in desperate need of a way to transport supplies and personnel to Europe. Big problem was, at the time, U.S. transport ships were getting worked by German U-boats. If you don't know what German U-boats are, they're submarines with torpedoes that were hard to detect, even harder to destroy, and were really good at sinking ships. I think we've actually had to... explain that this might be the third time we've done that maybe u-boats were a pretty big thing so in 1942 howard hughes along with harry j kaiser presented the u.s military with a plan to develop a giant wooden aquatic plane to resolve this issue now there are a few advantages to this idea advantage one the scarcity of metal due to the war effort left wood as a much easier object to maintain for building uh, because of the wood design, it would be giving the nickname Spruce Goose, uh, which will be used a lot. Ironically, the plane didn't use any spruce at all in its construction. Uh, it was mostly they built a birch. plane out of wood? Yes. Oh my I mean, God. that's not that unreal. Planes were wood, and then we made them metal, and then Howard Hughes was like, let's just make this one out of wood because it's easier to get. <laughs> and you gotta think, there's a lot of advantages to wood. It floats... Uh, it's relatively light. It's very sturdy. So advantage two to the Hercules. Uh, it was a flying boat. So submarines can attack you if you're flying above the water. Uh, boats, easy to hit by torpedoes. Planes, can't hit them with torpedoes. I know what you might be thinking. Boat, really? Is this really like a flying boat? And yes, the thing was massive. And when I say it was giant, I really mean giant uh wingspan was longer than a football field kind of giant uh so this thing honestly could carry as much if not more than most transport ships that the u.s was using at that time 
1918, the U.S. issued a military contract for three of these planes. One was to be a test instance of the plane, a prototype, if you will, and two were meant for production. Um, but the task immediately faced issues. First, the demand for supplies, even though he was using wood for a lot of the plane, left the Hughes Aircraft Company struggling to get what it needed. And since the project was not a high priority, they were constantly waiting on more materials to continue doing their work. Second, on May 17th, 1943, Howard Hughes, who's the guy leading the project, crashed his aquatic Sikorsky S-43, which he was using to test flight operations for the Spruce Goose. Two of the four passengers in the plane died on impact, and Hughes suffered a severe gash on the top of his head, along with some more brain trauma. Oh my god. How many, like, how many times does he have to crash a plane before they're like, hey, maybe we do the test flights from now on? Bro, they try. I guess they can't tell him. Even back with the H1, like, I was talking about Odekirk. Odekirk was like, dude, there's no, this is the first flight. You, if you die, I lose my job. This company probably goes under. Like, you do not have to fly this plane. And Howard Hughes is like, I'm not going to let everyone else have all the fun. And goes and hops (laughs) up in the plane. Like, (laughs) yeah. So he just, he, he always does his own test flights. He always will. He won't let anyone else do them because he wants the prestige of doing them. Because a lot of times these planes are like setting records. And two, he's just constantly flying. And planes didn't what used to be that What prestige comes from crashing the plane? Like... None. The prestige comes from flying the plane. He has like a 5,000 beat kill streak. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, keeping in mind this is the second airplane crash where he's received a head injury. The, the When he crashed the H1, it wasn't that bad of a crash. Um, but this is the second one where he's like done damage to his head. And we also have to keep in mind, I've mentioned a few times, he acts a little OCD from time to time. Head injuries and mental issues kind of, or head injuries, I should say, exacerbate mental issues uh, in most cases. So it's kind of, a lot of the theory is the reason that he gets worse is because of these head injuries. Now, the third setback to making the Hercules was that Hughes had a very strange schedule. He would go over plans all night and add new improvements constantly, reworking the engineering. So things that they would build would have to be unbuilt and rebuilt. And he would choose different parts 15 times and keep changing his mind on what tiny little part that he wanted to use, even if it didn't really make a difference. I couldn't find actual evidence of this, but I know in the Martin Scorsese movie, there's this scene where they show him looking at like, a whole bunch of different like just steering wheels or flight columns whatever you call how you steer the plane and he's like looking over all of them he's like no 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 none of these are good he's like well this is all of them you've looked at all the available ones that we have and he's like we gotta find something else because he just had that like severe level of ocd about every little minor detail and this is the part where it really seemed like hughes ocd was starting to be a major problem in his life Engineers joke that without Hughes' help on the Hercules project, it would have been done in a year. Instead, it ends up taking about four years. Yeah. Furthermore, and finally, Hughes was spreading himself then. In addition to the Hughes Aviation Company, Hughes had also started making movies again. And during the filming of his movie, The Outlaw, Hughes struggled to operate as a producer, or rather, the crew struggled to operate with him. 
He would obsess, once again, over minor details, such as the fit of one of the main actress's shirt in one specific scene. And he wrote intensive details on how the shirt would be fixed by cutting it in certain ways, requiring the scene to be reshot once he thought the shirt that everyone else thought was fine fit correctly. He would then go missing for days at a time, and the crew struggled to produce with him gone, knowing that if he came back, they might have to make changes to any work that they got done with him gone because he would probably want to reshoot for something very minor. By 1947, Hughes was also constantly fighting to keep the military from scrapping his two projects, the F-11 and the Hercules, aka the Spruce Goose. The main reason was that the war was over and had been over at this point for two years. In the eyes of the military, the Hughes Aircraft Company couldn't meet deadlines and racked up bills, which in all honesty was true. On July 7th, 1946, the XF-11, which was the prototype for what was supposed to be that 100-plane reconnaissance plane order, uh, took its maiden voyage. Hughes, as always, flew the plane himself. After a brief time, a malfunction with one of the plane's two propellers caused the XF-11 to crash in residential LA. The plane clipped two houses during its descent and completely destroyed a third. Good After God. the crash... Yeah, he crashed the plane into a house. Yeah. After, <laughs> After the crash... Hughes was very badly injured from third-degree burns, a broken collarbone, broken ribs, a crushed chest, and a punctured lung. And in fact, he had crushed his chest so severely that it moved his heart from the left side of his body to the right side. Uh, while That's he just did, a thing that can happen? <laughs> yeah, it shifted his organs. Uh, I don't did know they if fix they ever... it, or did he just have a heartbeat well, on the right side now? I read that fact, and I didn't... I didn't have the time to follow up to see if they like just pushed it back to the other side. I, I so assume when he did the Pledge of Allegiance, did he use the other hand? <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Wow, Michael. So Hughes did overcome <laughs> this uh, he didn't injury die. Uh, using lots and lots and lots of morphine to handle the pain. Uh, he, of course, developed an addiction. And afterwards, he did overcome his morphine addiction using the assistance of codeine, which is kind of a normal, just less deadly drug. Uh, he would become codeine dependent for the rest of his life. By April 5th, 1947, which is almost a year later, Hughes was successfully recovered and managed to pilot the XF-11 once more for a successful test flight. The military, after seeing the successful test flight, then decided to scrap the project. So, now with three massive head injuries under our belts. In August of the same year, Hughes was called to testify before the Senate War Investigation Committee. The investigative committee accused Hughes of profiteering off the war effort. Hughes denied these claims and falsehoods and revealed that he had instead invested $7 million of his own money into uh, the Hercules Project, the Spruce Goose. And I say invested... That's money that he's never getting back. Like, he yeah. just wanted it to be done, so he kept putting money into it. Hughes then flipped the court on the chairman of the committee, Congressman Brewster, who he accused of being a corrupt politician that was only investigating Hughes due to his ownership of TWA, which was a major competitor to Pan Am. Coincidentally, Congressman Brewster also had connections to Pan Am. Hughes stated before the congressional committee that because of this connection, Brewster had approached him in an attempt to blackmail Hughes that he would initiate the investigation unless Hughes agreed to begin a merger between TWA and Pan Am. 
This obviously caused Brewster to have to step down as chairman of the committee, where he was then questioned as a witness. Further going on to defend himself from the committee's assertion that the Hercules aircraft would never be flown, Hughes stated, if it is a failure, I'll probably leave this country and never come back. I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. On November 2nd, the Spruce... I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. <laughs> <laughs> On November 2nd, the Spruce Goose made its inaugural flight in the Bay of Cavarillo Beach in L.A. The aircraft flew at 70-foot elevation for a mile, and while it never flew again, this marked the end to the investigation into Howard Hughes. And I know some of you naysayers out there are like, oh, but it only flew 70 feet above the water. Da, da, da. It couldn't fly like a real plane. You can't hit a plane that's flying 70 foot over water, can you? Then the plane kind of did what it was supposed to, didn't it? I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah, but you uh, could also uh, be smoking a cigarette on it and the whole thing would go up in flames. No. No. They treated it. They had a wood. They treated the wood. Planes, I don't know why you're acting like planes haven't been wooden. All planes used to be wooden. That's like saying like if you smoke a, a cigarette in a wooden house, it's going to burst into flames. Like, you shouldn't smoke inside. Not, a lot of people do it all the time. You shouldn't. It's stinky. Shouldn't. Yeah, it's stinky. Make your house stink. stinky. Think of, how, think of how stinky that plane would be. What? People smoked on planes. They did smoke on planes. Probably stunk. They were probably stinky. They smoked on, pl they smoked on pressurized planes, too. Yes. Which is big now. <laughs> so as of today, the H-4 Hercules aircraft is still on display in McMinnville, Oregon. So if you guys are wanting to make a trip, I am definitely interested to go see that thing. We can swing by Blockbuster, too, right? We're making a sightseeing trip to Oregon. You can get PCP there now. Oh. <laughs> So with the end of the troubles of the 40s behind him, Hughes began to expand his business empire, growing Hughes Aircraft Company to get into aerospace technology, growing TWA into a larger rival in the air travel market, and after gaining a majority share of the RKO companies, which RKO companies were like studios, movies, movie theaters, like they were a huge player in the movies game. Uh, he expended his film empire before selling the company in 55. Uh, the latter marked a virtual end to Hughes' involvement in film, although he produced two more movies in 56 and 57. In 1953, Hughes also founded the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which was a non-profit research organization. Uh, this was a goal of Hughes after both of his parents died and was actually a part of his will as early as age 18. Uh, in 57, Hughes married former girlfriend and actress Jean Peters. Uh, Jean retired from the acting life uh, to live a life of seclusion with Howard Hughes and became involved in charity work, among other interests. Uh, it was claimed by many that Jean was the only woman that Howard Hughes ever really loved. Except his mother. Don't forget about his mother. Right, right. So uh, things were not all peaches and cream for Howard Hughes um, at the in the 50s. And uh, things are about to get much, much worse. See, Howard Hughes, as we've mentioned many times, had always been peculiar, and his OCD was at many times a nuisance to those around him. For example, according to former girlfriend Catherine Hepburn, he would only eat dinner once everyone else had left the room. The CEO of Howard's business empire, Noah Dietrich, who is played by John C. Riley in the Scorsese movie. Oh, really? Yeah. 
so Noah Dietrich or Noah Dietrich wrote that Hughes always had the same meal for dinner, which was a medium rare New York strip steak, salad, and small peas. He would never eat the ones he decided Hold were on. too large and push them into their own pile on his plate. <sighs> Only you small answered piece. my question before I could ask it. I know I was <laughs> going to. That's why I didn't stop when you said hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he would push them into a pile. And he'd only eat the small ones. Uh, let's mm-hmm. move on. I, I have so many questions, but let's just Obsessive compulsive disorder. Because uh, <laughs> all of my questions start with why, and I don't think there's an answer. So yeah, I bring up these small quirks of Howard to show, like, this is what obsessive compulsive disorder is. A lot of times, if Howard would say something and it didn't sound right coming out of his <clears throat> mouth, he would just repeat it over and over and over again and work himself up into a panic. Like obsessive compulsive, like this isn't the like, oh yeah, I'm a little OCD. This is like the full blown, like this is ruining my life. So uh, I bring up both these examples also uh, to say that they were minor in comparison to what would happen in 1958. One night early in the year, Howard told his aides that he would like to go to screen some movies at a film studio nearby. He ended up staying in the film studio for four months, consuming only chocolate bars and chicken and drinking only milk that had been unopened and was sealed in bottles. He passed notes to his aides telling them never to speak to him unless addressed and never to look at him. Hold on. Okay, so so he was at this movie theater living there for four months. Film studio. He went to a, a film, film studio. studio. Okay, he I'm went sorry. into one of their, like, screening rooms. Uh, which were, like, relatively nice, but yeah. He, but he didn't own this place. Um, I don't have it written. He probably bought it. Typically, when he'd stay too long somewhere, he'd just buy it. Okay. So I don't know if he bought this or just rented it out, whatever he did. He, yeah, so he stayed there for four months. They were like, yeah, we're supposed to use the screening room today. And they're like, nah, uh, Howard's in there. They're like, is he going to be long? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's been in there for two months. Like, he's- <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, he was still running his business during the psychotic break. He would pass notes to aides telling them, like, what to do and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he wore no clothes and he stored his urine in the empty milk bottles. He continuously watched movies, uh, obsessively, sometimes on repeat, watching the same movie multiple times in a row. That room had... They they, they had to just, like, burn that place down. Can you imagine the yeah. smell in there? It smells like rotten milk, chicken, and, and Howard piss. Hughes. Four months of Howard Hughes. Yeah. So, the only hygienic aid that he had were boxes of Kleenexes, which he used to touch anything and to wipe himself down with. Uh, pretty much for the rest of his life, he's Kleenexes are going to play a big role. So, uh, he that's would, what I don't understand, though. Like, if for somebody so germaphobic, how could they go four months locked up in a room, like, without showering, with only, like, Kleenexes to wipe themselves down with? Because it's not rational. Yeah, because it's OCD. True. It is germophobia, but it's it's like it's like all this like anxiety that he has about his health and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But he like never goes to get his OCD like checked out, yeah. which I guess you know makes sense because at this time psychology and psychiatry were kind of like you know they had a stigma around them. Do um, we have an account of how his feet were doing? I'm sure bad. Actually, yeah. Well, I'll get to that. Okay. Uh, 
so yeah he would repeatedly like yeah there there's a lot of weird things that he did during these film month during these four months uh so in the summer when he finally emerged from the screening room he had not cut his hair or nails and to no one's surprise he absolutely reeked um for the rest of his life pretty much he would only cut his hair and nails once a year and that's because he had kind of developed a disorder from his plane crashes where it caused him physical pain to cut his nails and his hair and it really bothered him yeah so he's out he looks like a hobo and he reeks uh after leaving the studio he moved into a room at the beverly hill hotel despite owning properties all over uh, and he continued binge watching of movies in the nude only covering himself with a modest napkin above his junk above his junk he didn't cover his junk well, he, like, placed it in his lap. Okay. So, the reason that he didn't wear clothes, and a lot of, like, industry professionals have given him their, like, absent diagnosis uh, of him having a disease called allodyna. This is a disorder in which you have a pain response to stimulus that wouldn't normally cause people pain, uh, such as wearing clothes or things touching your skin. So the common thought here is the reason that he was naked so often is because he couldn't stand for things to touch him. When he sat in his chair to watch movies, he would sit motionless, trying not to move. Once again, head injuries and mental disorders. It, it, they, yeah, they don't mix. Yeah. So furthermore, at this hotel, Hughes also paid for rooms for his wife, Jean, and all of her aides and became even more terrified of germs not being able to tolerate dust or any amount of imperfection on someone's appearance. During all of this, Hughes left control of his companies up to the officers and for the most part, only conveyed further business decisions through memos or the phone. Some of those directions made sense and continued to grow his business empire. Others did not. In 1966, Hughes sold TWA for a cool half billion dollars. Thanksgiving Day of the same year, he moved into the Desert Inn Motel in Las Vegas. Afterward, he bought the hotel and began investing heavily in Las Vegas hotels, casinos, and other properties. While most of these purchases were sensible business directions, one casino he purchased in particular, which was known as the Silver Slipper, was simply bought so he could move its iconic neon sign in order for it not to shine through his window anymore. Dear God. Hughes also began purchasing radio and television stations in Vegas. Uh, his heavy investment into Las Vegas, coupled with his reclusive nature, led many to believe a conspiracy that he was controlling a lot of Vegas's inner workings from behind the scenes. In 1970, Gene Peters filed for divorce after 14 years of marriage. Although the two had not lived together for many years and had only spoken through telephone for the last few. That's my thing, is like... Why bother getting the divorce? Yeah, I guess she wanted to move on. I think that they did have a relationship. It seemed like a lot of the women that stuck around for a while, Catherine Hepburn and Jean Peters being the main two, pitied him. Like, they yeah. realized that something was very wrong. And they possibly did love him and just, you know, stayed with him, hoping that he would just get over it one day. Uh, for the rest of their lives, the two never spoke ill of each other. She asked for, I think... It was somewhere near $70,000 a year for the rest of his life. And he was like, mm. okay, cool. Yeah. Um, on April 5th, 1976, Howard Hughes died on a private aircraft en route to a hospital in Houston from Mexico. 
from Mexico or New Mexico? Well, Mexico. Uh, he was just staying at a re- at a resort there in a hotel room by himself. Okay. <laughs> His beard, hair, and nails were all long. He was covered in bed sores, and at six four, he only weighed ninety pounds. Oh my god! Yeah. The cause of death was kidney failure, possibly due to malnutrition. Five broken off hypodermic needles were found embedded into his arms. And this isn't like he'd been doing it at the moment. This is ones that he just lost in the past and left there. What was he shooting up? Codeine. Oh, right. Because the, yeah, he had a codeine dependence. Yeah. Uh, Since Hughes was without a will at the time of his death, his $2.5 billion fortune was split amongst 22 family members, except for the Hughes Aircraft Company, which was left as property of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and sold to GM in 1985 for $5.2 billion. Dear God. From the late 50s to the end of his life... Wait, did you say GM or GE? GM. General Motors. General Motors bought the airplanes? The the aircraft company. They were doing aerospace and satellite. They were doing all sorts of stuff. They had really expanded. All right. Uh, From the late 50s to the end of his life, Howard Hughes was the wealthiest person in the United States and likely in the world. Hmm. And remember, most of that time, he was spent holed up in hotel rooms. Right. Not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the I really wish you hadn't is pretty obvious with this one. Uh, quit flying get quit getting in plane crashes yeah. yeah and also like mental disorders like he was the wealthiest man in the world and he was like too crippled to wear clothes yeah like it, the head injuries the drugs the ocd that was just left unchecked like completely ruined him and it, i mean you can argue that he was successful but can you can you really yeah i can you want me i mean to? he was definitely successful but jesus like yeah, at what He cost? wasn't enjoying life. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all I have here's on Howard Hughes. Here's, my, here's have... my lesson. Mm-hmm. If you're that wealthy, get other people to do the dangerous stuff. If you're that healthy, go to a psychologist every once in a while. That if wealthy. You're that, if you're that wealthy, go to a psychologist every once in a while. Have somebody check your feet every morning. <laughs> Remember to keep taking your mineral oil baths. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, moving on to afternotes. I got quite a few. Uh, the idea for the rock eater drill bit may not have been entirely Hughes Sr.'s idea. Uh, according to a memoir of a man named Granville A. Hummison, he sold Hughes Sr. a wooden prototype of the bit in 1908 for $150. And then he What's celebrated it? the sale by spending $50 of those earnings buying people drinks at the saloon. Nice. But... Okay, but that, I guess I almost went on the wood thing again. But the prototype was just to show, like, how it would work. They weren't actually yeah, trying yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. okay, all right. Cause I yeah, was he, was selling, no... he, was, he was selling the idea, an unpatented okay. idea that he thought was great. And and it was. I, I kind of believe this story because, like, it's not like Hummison was trying to get any more money. He was just like, yeah, that happened, and then I... I blew that huge idea and spent $50 of what I made on drinks yeah, that night. that's the other lesson to take. If you've got a good idea, don't tell anyone. Patent it. Yeah. Just patent it. What, you guys don't have, you know, patent lawyers on retainer? Exactly. What are you, poor? Uh, 
So, uh, oh, this is this is one of my favorite ones. So you know that guy that we like and we talk about a lot on our show? Uh, Alex Jones? No, Richard Nixon. Oh, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a rumor that Nixon ordered the Watergate break-in to find out what the DNC knew about Howard Hughes bribing Nixon. Um, what? Although... Yeah, although after looking into the evidence, the claims are a little lackluster. I'm not saying that they're not true, but there's not a lot of definitive evidence, but it's definitely possible. I Look, there's so many theories tied to Watergate of like what they were looking for. I feel well, like every time we do an episode, it could be like, some say that Nixon was breaking into Watergate <laughs> to find out what, uh, what the USFL was planning for the fall 1986 <laughs> season. I, this one does have a little bit more evidence than that, like... Howard Hughes did contribute a lot to politicians, on politicians on both sides. And actually, uh, the financial manager of his estate, his like CEO of his operations, mm-hmm. said that like any time that a new politician in a state like got into office or was elected president, uh, Howard Hughes immediately donated $50,000. Like somewhere around that amount. Just to stay in everyone's good graces. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Not a bad idea, honestly. Yep, 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 yep. So, uh, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute that I mentioned, uh, it still operates today with a $22.6 billion endowment and a yearly revenue of $2.38 billion. Uh, this crazy. makes it the second largest philanthropic organization in the U.S. and the world's second largest medical charity. I imagine the first one being the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Not entirely sure. I meant to look it up, but it's an afternote, so I don't want to yeah. get, get too deep into it. Uh, in 1936, Hughes was in an automobile accident in which he struck and killed pedestrian Gabriel S. Meyer. Uh, okay, so Hughes... is that the only person he killed? Like, because I, I, when he you broke could... into the house, I meant to ask if he killed anybody. Uh, I, no, he didn't kill anyone in the house, but uh, when he crashed... Oh, he crashed um, the plane and those two people died in the plane. When he crashed the other plane, he crashed those two people. Yeah. And that's not really him killing them. He's not really found guilty of killing this guy either. Uh, Hughes had... Cons- the wealthiest person in the world. He yeah. He throw him in prison. <laughs> so, Hughes had consumed drinks that night. Um, oh, but good. He, well, he was considered sober when he arrived to the hospital shortly afterwards. He may have just had, like, literally one or two drinks. Yeah. Uh, he's not someone that, like got drunk frequently yeah uh hughes claimed that the man had stepped off the dark sidewalk in front of his car and the story was corroborated by a woman who was in him with the car there is some doubt about this you had some she was in him with the car no she was in the car with him yeah you said you said in him who was with him in the car yeah Yeah, oh i probably messed it up regardless yeah you're good uh there's some people that say like, oh yeah, I saw that and he was going way too fast and blah, blah, blah. It's the tabloids had such a run with Howard Hughes. It's hard right. to know the exact details around that. Um, but regardless, he wasn't found guilty of anything. Um, while laid up in the hospital after his near fatal XF 11 crash, this is the one where he crashed in LA. Right. Uh, Hughes still had an active mind. Uh, actually upset with the design of the bed that he was in. And you got to keep in mind, he's like got third degree burns on a lot of his body. Most of his like bones are like broken. His heart's in the wrong place. So he's like completely like restricted. Like he's not moving. Um, So he calls in a bunch of engineers to come to his room where he 
like methodically lays out his plan for a bed to replace the one that he's in. Uh, over the next few hours, he gave them precise specifications uh, for how many motors the bed should have and how it should move in six sections using push-button adjustments. Uh, this bed became the prototype for the modern hospital bed. That's nuts. Yeah. So next time you're in a hospital bed, think, oh, this is pretty much what Howard Hughes designed. While he was in a hospital bed. While he couldn't move. I have to wonder, though. Like... With somebody with this many resources, he can surround himself with some of the smartest people in the world. So I feel like he can just say vague things and be like, eh, we need a hospital bed, it's gotta move in six places, it's gotta have motors in it, and then, like, the engineers will be like, okay, we've gotta take all this crazy shit that Howard just said, and we gotta make something that works out of it. You could make that argument, but it doesn't make sense. Hughes was controlling over everything. And he wouldn't let people take credit for anything. Like like him flying the planes. He didn't want someone else to do it because he didn't want someone else to say like, oh, like Howard Hughes didn't even fly his own plane. I think that he actually did. Like, no, and I'm not saying that he like, wasn't he's... smart or whatever, but I think it's also easy to buy into the narrative that this one guy did everything where if you surround yourself with smart people and you're always taking credit for everyone's work, it seems like you're way smarter than you actually are. Well, like, that's a. Uh, I, I will say, and I'm gonna keep playing devil, devil's advocate on this one because there was a lot of great things that happened at Hughes Aviation Company that, like, or Hughes Aircraft Company that he like didn't even take credit for. Like they they did a lot of stuff with like missile tracking when they're shot out of jets and like like uh, shooting missiles to space and all that sort of stuff. And like like I said, he wasn't very involved in that. You can't really call those his accomplishments. I just brought up the ones that he did. Yeah. I get what you're saying. It's possible that like, especially with the bed thing, like he may have like had a few ideas, but from how it seemed, like he spent a long time like being very precise about the specifications. Like here's what needs to happen. Yeah. Um, it could go one way or the other. Regardless, dude's stupid smart. Um, and of course... Like normal with stupid smart people, um, he was insane. He had a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, he was insane. So that is Howard Hughes. Man, what a bummer! Yeah, he was a man. Uh, he lives on today in uh, you know movies, fiction, video yeah. games, like yeah. we've talked about. Uh, I actually re-downloaded Fallout New Vegas during this. <laughs> I am I am about to do the same. I was considering doing that earlier. Tommy Lee Jones played him in a movie. Of course, Leonardo DiCaprio played him in a movie, The Aviator. Definitely recommend that one. God, he looks like Charles Manson. Yeah. He's terrifying. Yeah. I don't know. The I'm one, I'm afraid of needles. But yeah. two, the whole part about him like just walking around with broken off needles in his arms. Yeah. Like, ooh, that bothers me. Yeah. Well, that might be why he was so uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> Maybe. Well, but, Michael, how about you close us out? All right. Well, uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at IRWYH Podcast and on Instagram at I Really Wish You Hadn't. Uh, if you got anything, you know, you want to tell us uh, how scary uh, Howard Hughes is or uh, how much you'd love Fallout New Vegas. Because I also love that game. Great uh, game. Shoot us an email at podcast at I really wish you hadn't dot com. Uh, and <laughs> I feel like we added this smash that follow button as like a uh, as like a joke. But the more we do it, the more it just turns into us 
unironically saying that. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna switch it up. I'm gonna say we would really appreciate if you would follow the podcast and uh, yeah, get get our numbers up because we uh, love doing this and we'd love to keep doing it and share. Leave it with us more a people. review. They Leave us a review. Ever... We got another one recently that called Came in a Virgin, and I thought it was really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that is the thing with reviews. They always make me not cry. <laughs> <laughs> they did give five stars, though, so I mean, I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, share it with I'm your friends. I'm married. I am not a virgin. Well, I mean, look, just because you're married doesn't mean anything. Howard Hughes was married, and he talked to his wife on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. All right. Guys. I talk to my Ooh. wife in person like a man. <laughs> I look her in the <laughs> eyes. All right, guys. Uh, well, we will see you on the next one. Woohoo! Woo. Bye. Bye. I love this song. Oh, you know this one. I really wish you hadn't, as hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Kevin McMahon. We are produced by Colin Moore. Intro music by Attack Story. The song you're hearing now is by Home. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take a shower. Don't spend four months locked inside a movie theater watching movies all the time. It's fun for maybe a weekend, but nothing past that. <laughs> and as always... I want to fly a plane flask. Yeah, flask. Uh, uh, that's it. That's another thing not to do. Don't... After you crash a plane... One maybe take, time? Maybe take a couple hang years Hang it off. up. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna say you get two. You get two plane you crashes. Get two. After oh, wow. two plane crashes, no more. You can't fly a plane anymore. That right. means you, Harrison Ford. I know you've crashed freaking helicopters he, all the time. He, you need he, to stop. He's it. crashed, but he landed a plane on he's a taxiway. He's an emergency pilot. He landed you a plane on a taxiway. And as always, don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs>